I thought the clock. Hello. Oh my God, Andy. Let me intro the show. <laughs> Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 27th of July. These months are now kind of flying by, at least for me, oh compared to what it was like at the beginning of quarantine, where I think the first week was the slowest week of my life uh, in terms of days just not <laughs> passing. Part of that was just because, like everyone else, I had trouble sleeping, but um, now it just seems like we're on this almost like Groundhog Day. Do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah. I agree. I'm here with Andy and Tammy. That's who you hear agreeing with me, which is good. <laughs> Thank you, guys. For now. <laughs> um, yeah, if it's just weird now. Time time has been a very strange thing, and I hope that somebody writes a good critical essay about all this at some point. Um, that's my new thing is that I just suggest critical <laughs> essays for people to write, and I never want to write them. But... Uh, yeah, it's. I just don't really understand what's happened. Every day seems the same. Every day we have seventy thousand new cases. Every day we have between eight hundred and a yeah. thousand deaths. Every day, uh, I know that other places are reopening, and maybe it's, a, maybe it's like where I live, but nothing has nothing has changed here. How about where you guys are? Like, do you do you get a sense that things are opening or closing? Well, California re quarantined, right? Like it went from liberal to closed off. And liberal. <laughs> liberated. Um, liberated. Uh, yeah, but up here in the Bay Area, especially where I am in Berkeley, there's been very little change. So the most, uh, the most significant change and the most noticeable change was that the bookstores reopened, you know? So mm. that's basically it. But every, yeah. everything has, feels the same. Yeah. The, to- the toy store that my kid loves and the bookstore is still closed and... Um, you know, uh, construction restarted, so that's that is a difference. But um, other than that, I think it's just essential workers going to work and yeah. tech workers staying home. Tammy, yeah. what about you? My my parents Andy. said that like uh, they can go to restaurants and stuff now in Washington State, and that they went to one Korean restaurant and yeah. they freaked out and they're never going back. Why? Why they freak out? Oh, okay. Well, my, they just said it just felt very unsafe. Yeah, I would not. I don't think I would sit inside for like an hour. I think I would sit outside if possible. Otherwise, just do takeout. Exactly. Yeah, they went to a Korean restaurant in like Linwood and they they (laughs) ate inside and they just just said it was not cool. Yeah. Um, Not because of the restaurant at all, but just because the situation was really (laughs) weird. Um, Yeah, I think the indoors is kind of scary. I left New York right when it started feeling a little bit more normal, and I think that trajectory has continued, according to friends and family there. But in Tacoma, Washington, where I am now, I think there was, like, kind of the same as, like, in California, a little bit of a re-clamp down. Um, But, yeah, the restaurants are open, all the stores are open, people are kind of going about their business in masks. I don't think we can't really eat indoors until, like, this is over, right? Like, it just seems way too dangerous to spend, right? We shouldn't, yeah. A lot of people people are, though, and they're, they're just doing, like, the way they did in, in South Korea and Taiwan, where they just keep, like, a uh-huh. ton of space between people and try to turn on fans and open windows. I, it open still windows, feels creepy better. to me. I think the main thing is ventilation. That's, like, yeah. my new, my new totally. like, secret, like, key thing to, to fixate on. Speaking of food and restaurants and cooking for yourself... Our first topic today, I don't know if we should even do it this way, but I'm going to try because of uh, 
I'm going to blame it on Tammy. It's Tammy's love of structure. Our first, our first topic today <laughs> is uh, something that, that I've been watching a ton of, and I don't know why, but there's a very strange <laughs> dynamic in them, and I want to cue this up correctly. So uh, there's a lot of TikTok videos of Asian people cooking, and they're mostly young people. Um, have you guys watched any of these outside of you know me sending them to you and telling you to watch them? <laughs> I watch all the ones you sent. I'm not a TikToker. TikToker. Yeah. Okay. Tammy, have you do, have you been, have you watched any of these before I sent them to you? Um, not on TikTok, but on YouTube. Oh, on YouTube. Okay. Is there, was, yeah, they tend to be longer. You know, obviously. Who, who'd you watch on YouTube? Like Mangchi or something like that. Mangchi being like the sort of most famous Korean YouTube cooking person. Yeah, her, but but also like more similar to the ones you sent, which are like kind of younger, yeah. people faster, taking off, yeah. like doing their own kind of renditions like, on this stuff. Like you know, do you guys ever watch those like tiny food videos on YouTube? No, what's that? Like they're like mini foods. Mini food. Like they'll make a Krispy Kreme donut, but it's like the size of your finger. No, that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> they're like I've watched so many of them. They're just like these tiny, like almost like toy kitchen videos. Uh-huh. But they cook stuff that like looks legit like the real large thing. I want to play a couple of these for the guests, listeners, guests, whatever. Because um, I think that there's a very interesting dynamic going on that I want us to talk about. So the first is this one. Yo, about to make some kimchi fried rice. Add some oil. Yo, add some scallions. Add garlic. Add jalapenos. Complete the cipher in medium heat. Add the bacon. Yo, notice how everything is super thinly sliced. Yo, in the meantime, cut kimchi with the scissor. Make a mad thin. Uh, and the second one is is this. Today, I'm going to show you how to make Instapot pho. Beef soup bones, onions, ginger. You're going to air fry them. And then you're going to fill your pot with the bones and water. Salt, onion, ginger, tendon. Then you're going to press soup. Next is veggies, green onions, chop that, cilantro, chop that, limes, and Thai basil. <laughs> the gender part is the first thing we should talk about because it's fascinating to me because, you know, we're told everything about how Gen Z is much more gender fluid and that these sort of binaries don't exist anymore. And yet it seems like amongst young Asian people who make cooking videos that gender norms are actually even more reinforced <laughs> than they were when we were growing up. I mean, it's crazy. Like, the guys... All the guys, you know, and I will not say all of them, but a lot of the guys who do this, who are, you know, um, uh, Asian American guys, they talk like, you know, they talk with a very distinct accent, which, you know, we don't have, they talk like they're black, Mm -hmm. right? Like they talk like uh, in a lot of the ways that people criticize Aquafina for. And um, I found that really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 this all started with uh, this Popeyes video and a lot of these are just knockoffs of that. So let's play the Popeyes video here. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Start with that chicken thigh, pat it dry. Get them all in a bowl. Season them all with Tabasco, cayenne, salt, pepper, and garlic powder. Mix it up until it looks just like that. Two cups of flour, cayenne, paprika, cornstarch, salt, and pepper. Mix it up. That's the flour mix. Do you think that this reflects anything about the state of, of young Asian America right now? Because oh my God. I, I personally <laughs> think that it speaks volumes about it, but I want to know what you guys think. Do you really? What? Well, well, how else do you explain it? I don't know how, it? how many people this There's is. There's millions well, of people I, what watching I this I was stuff. thinking is like, yes, but there aren't billions of people making it. I mean, I think like it, the the female part 
adheres to like the kawaii aesthetic, yeah. right? Like the cute, like, and I think that that is just, it's almost like, you know, that if you need, if you want to make a video popular on the internet, that's like what you need to do. That's just like an existing framework that I think young Asian women know yeah. works and that they can automatically plug into. They know the genre conventions of it. So it seems like a good strategy if you want to get a lot of clicks. Uh, yeah, but why are those? Why do those work? Like, why do those conventions work? Right, but that's like that also connects to like the aesthetics of like Japan and you know stuff that isn't necessarily yeah. Asian American. The okay, so we're getting somewhere work. here. Okay, the one you showed Cammy, us. Could you, the could you, you please expand? Could you expand on that, please? Well, the interesting thing was the ones you showed us. There were, I think, most of them were Vietnamese women, right? But they're well, no. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of Korean women and, and Chinese women too. Yeah. yeah. But there, there won't um, be like from Japan. But they are like uh, Tammy is saying, sort of emulating that sort of very familiar, you know, cutesy, almost childlike aesthetic that became popular. It's very childlike. Hello Kitty, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say it goes back to like Sanrio yeah. and anime. So I don't know, like. If I can properly, I'm not, like, I'm not entirely sure they're being this. sincere, both the men and the women, right? Like, uh, but the, but the yeah. one, the guy, I don't know if you're going to play this one where he makes the seaweed soup. It's almost like so cartoonish. He He's obviously self-aware. I, th- I think he's self-aware right. that he's like a parody of himself, of, of this whole genre, where he's just so over the top. Um, and... I don't think that's true. <laughs> that guy, by the way, here, we'll play some of it here. Okay. Yo, this is how you make Byoku. First, grab yourself some seaweed. All you need is this 10 gram. I know these joints like mad little, right? But once you soak it with water, it's going to triple up. Just watch. What? That guy is the is the most popular one of all of these in terms of total views. Yeah. Right? And I, I agree. There's something weird about it where he's, uh, where he, it's, first of all, the food doesn't look particularly good. Right. You know? Like, uh, I was going to ask, the is other, that, is that, do you guys love that soup or something? <laughs> the soup's good and he's making it correctly I love me but he's not making it particularly in an interesting way yeah. but I guess that's part of the point right. but yeah. I actually think that does reflect something and it what it reflects is that and look the, the popularity of these things is not questioned right and there's a reason why some things become popular and some things don't become popular and I think for this the reason is because I think that amongst young Asian kids you know many of whom are in church settings or many of whom are still trying to figure out their identity that gender roles are actually pretty distinct Mm -hmm. you know and that uh there are and that a lot of that is influenced by asian culture right like uh, asian culture being like a big air quotes but it's influenced by what you're talking about tammy like kawaii culture and you know like hello kitty all the way back to um Mm -hmm. there is definitely a hello kitty aesthetic in some of these but i think for the men you know, like masculinity is basically acting black. And I think that's totally fascinating. And I think that it's something that was certainly true when I was growing up, right, in the 90s, is that like uh, the way if you're an Asian guy that you sort of act tough is that you act black. This is like goes all the way back to like in the 90s and the 2000, early 2000s, kids in Flushing who are Chinese using the N-word indiscriminately, yeah. right? <laughs> um, uh, I don't think they do it as much anymore, but certainly still there are parts of the country where like Asian kids do that. And I think that it's interesting that none of that has really changed. Yeah. Like I, f- I find this to be exactly the same as the early 90s where the Girls Act. But I think just as popular as these food videos are like musical videos and uh, like like musical as in like 
a Broadway musical um, where you see a lot of more gender fluidity and like experimentation among like the kind of like, you know, theater crowd or like more queer Asian crowd. There's a lot of young people making those too. And those have millions of views. So I think there are different strains and maybe for some reason in this food genre, something is happening that's very sort of binary and like rigid, but I think there are other spaces of Asian young video making. I think more like I'm thinking about like if there is like this Asian church crowd that is making these sort of products that are like very gendered, there's also like a queer Asian theater nerd crowd or something that's making stuff that's very different. Oh, yeah. I'm talking more about like full on. And I would imagine that a lot of the people who consume that the theater stuff might not be Asian, you know? I think that the people who watch this stuff are almost exclusively Asian people and maybe even people in Korea and um, here in the United States. I don't know. It's it's, it's interesting to me because I thought that that stuff would have changed by now, but it just doesn't seem like it has. When you say that they sound black, uh, but black also means, as I was kind of suggesting earlier, like very masculine, very much about being tough as well, right? So I also think that has to... I think that's interesting, right? Because they're doing a thing that's traditionally for women, right? But they have to make it like a male thing. And especially because all the male videos you showed us, they're cooking meat, right? They're cooking like, they're ki- <laughs> like they don't kill the animal anymore. Like he- men don't kill animals anymore. They don't farm. They don't grow the food anymore unless they live in a farm in Berkeley, I guess. But, they- but so they have to buy it. And they feel, I think there's a sense of like, well, we've lost touch with what men used to do. So we have to make a big show out of how masculine it is to cook this stuff. Uh, well, that's a whole other genre is that people go out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these, like, it's not just the outdoor cooking one. There's like rugged guys who go out and they camp and it's <laughs> yeah. all filmed in a very but specific sure, yeah. way, which is like extremely yeah. pastoral. You rarely see the person. Right. And then, you you know, suddenly an arrow is flying through the, the sky and hits a deer or something like that. Those are great. I agree. <laughs> so oh. there's something interesting there about, like, compensating for the fact that we don't actually, like, kill the animals anymore or, or make anything anymore. But we have to, like, pretend like we're, we're like, rugged. Sure. I mean, like, things. the most famous chef is the guy who screams at everyone, right? Gordon Ramsay or whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, right. that, that's, that's part of it. But... I think for this, it's really just that the ideas, the sort of signif- gender signifiers for Asian American teens have not changed drastically in the last twenty years. I think that that it, that's what this signals to me, which is that for men t- trying to be public, yeah. like there's no way to be a. We've talked about this before. Before there's no way to be Asian American yeah. in public, right? Like there's like what does that mean? You know, it, it means like basically, you know like saying hello you know like <laughs> i today i cook it's like martin yang for yeah do you remember that yeah can, can, cook. Cook. can cook i love that show <laughs> like where he would like start cook he'd start cutting and then he would look up and smile you know like martin yan is like kind of like how to be publicly right. asian american but if you reject that as i think you should in 2020 right you shouldn't speak with a fake accent and like you know be like hit a gong and shit but like uh the way for Asian men to be publicly Asian American is to sort of take on the traits of black people and the way for Asian women, young girls to figure out that, you know, how to present themselves in public is still to do this kawaii thing. But is like, that, you know, is that like, binary too narrow? Like you, like it's among... It's Tammy looks extremely annoyed <laughs> and like embarrassed to be yeah. associated no, with No, just this. like, I don't think I agree <laughs> with this, but I want to hear what Andy well, has to like say. You, Jay, you're putting into the box of sounding black and... 
people probably sound like would say like, well, someone like me sounds white, right? But are these the only possibilities? Like, are are we just being unfair and not allowing Asian Americans to speak English fluently, unlike Martin Yan, but also kind of be their own thing? Or do they have to be either white or black? I'm not saying that everybody needs to do this. I'm just saying that these are still the choices that are left out to people. And that I think that if somebody, like an Asian American person who talks like us did a cooking video, that it would flop, you know, (laughs) because it's like, who's this guy, you know? Uh, There is one guy who is very popular as well, who's Asian, he's Korean, and he's, uh, he's walks around without a shirt, he's extremely good looking, and, uh, but he doesn't really do cooking, he just kind of like, is super woke (laughs) and in this really obnoxious way, and I think he's popular because he's really hot. You know, and and so that's a third option you could be is you could be like undeniably hot and walk around without a shirt on, and then you'll be really popular. I guess I just and say like the dumbest woke shit. Yeah. You know, like when you say Orient and make yeah, oh avocado God, toast at the same time. Um, I just I just don't, I don't know such a thing as an Asian American English that you know what I'm saying. Definitely. Yeah, that's my point, though. It's like, yeah. you know, and I think that kids, when they're trying to figure out what they want to be, they don't want to be white, right. right? They don't want to be, and they, they don't want to be Asian because it doesn't mean anything. Like, there's no Asian-American way for them to be outside of, like, you know, going, like, Pokemon and League of Legends <laughs> and Boba, and they reject that as well. And so to try and have some sort of edge, I think the guys, at least, are, are still appropriating this stuff i am not judging this like i actually find the whole appropriation debate to be 95 percent ridiculous and kind of exhausting and i think it's totally fine for these kids to do this i just am you know i just like was kind of like what's going on here you know there's this other thing that happens where and this is also very popular is that you'll have these kids asian kids who grew up in like you know uh mississippi or louisiana or in like compton and they are, if you just hear their voice, they'll like start talking and they'll be off camera and then they'll show up on camera and the, it'll be an Asian guy talking. And those are really popular <laughs> too. And they, they do these videos where they're, here, we'll play one right here. One time again, I'm Filipino and I'm from Texas. So I had to take English classes when I went to America. So listen, I don't just be saying, I just be joking. I say, I just be jokes. You feel me? That's me. You feel me? So if I say like shit like Abraham Lincoln, I don't care if it's Lincoln. I was learning to say Lincoln. You feel me? And they, 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 like, so, right? Like, you know, like that person. I love that. <laughs> I think that's great. But the, their, all like, their comments yeah. will be like, uh, you know, like, you're faking it, et cetera, et cetera. And so then they'll do these endless reply videos <laughs> where they just say, no, this is where I grew up. I'm allowed to speak this way. Which, you know, is basically, I don't know, doesn't that feel very familiar to when we were growing up? Yes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, you know, the basic stereotypes of Asian America and against, you know, foreign against Asian America, whatever is like beneficial or negative, haven't evolved that much. But I do think there is a proliferation of identities. I think there's something, though, that you've identified in the food videos that's very particular. But I I was wondering while watching them whether there's like a food subgenre of the kind of Fung Brothers Mm. stuff. Because that stuff is very like Asian American. Yeah, but they also like, in the way that I also can like tell like who grew up in California in like a Korean neighborhood or a Chinese neighborhood. Like I automatically know that I'm like that's an Asian American accent to me, like the San Gabriel yeah, Valley a- kind of thing. So I was wondering if there was a food offshoot of that sort of video. The Fung Bros. 
Okay, yeah. for our older listeners who don't know who the Fung Bros are, they're uh, these Asian brothers from who do sneaker videos, basically, right? But they they also are kind of identifiably. No. Wait. I've seen them do like campus videos where they interview a bunch of college students about who they date, basically. This is what YouTube yeah, algorithms yeah. are feeding me. They also wear like you know like they kind of do like a, they look like. You know the Fresh Prince of they dress like Will Smith did in the Fresh <laughs> Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I I agree that there is. I, look, I don't think that any of these people are putting on this as a as, in a conscious way to try and do this, right? Like what I think has actually happened is that over the last twenty years or thirty years, that basically a group of that Asian American men based, felt emasculated when they were growing up, and that they also felt like there's no culture for them to ascribe to, and that there's no way for them to be. And that a lot of them who grew up in cities around a lot of different types of people took on mm-hmm. the affect or the accents and the ways of speaking of the people who they were around, who they identified with the most. And a lot of times, those were black people who they were living around, or Mexican people, right? And that um, what it signals to me is just that you know. Um, there still hasn't been really a development of the, a way for these people, to, kids to be that is like identifiably Asian American, quote unquote. And I'm not even saying there should be. I actually think there shouldn't be, right? Because whatever came out of that would be strange. Like we wouldn't even know how to start with that. But yeah. I don't know. That's how I feel. Tammy, you still look very like, concerned. <laughs> yeah. anyway. The whole time she's just looking at I don't it. know. What I'm, <laughs> I'm just puzzling. Like, I think, yeah. I think there's something to be said about the fact that we probably all do not speak English the way our parents did, and perhaps consciously so. So you just pick up on the English you hear around you growing up. So you're going to sound like, perhaps more so than someone who is, I mean, you know, when you constantly speak to your parents in English, you probably will take on their accent no matter what, right? Um, You know, assuming like you want to. But if you don't really speak Mm -hmm. to your parents in English, then you kind of more naturally are a sponge for the English you hear in high school or in middle school or, you know, from your teachers. So I, I don't know. Maybe there's a certain, something to be said about being much more absorbent of of the English mm-hmm. around you. Did, did you used to have a Southern accent? Uh, yeah, well, like a slight Southern accent, but, like, you know, that was just because I, yeah. I was in the South. Sometimes your vowels sound different than my vowels, so I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the... Uh... Does Jay, like, code switch with his relatives? Like, they go full Southern at home. <laughs> I do have a friend here uh, who I grew up with who has a very thick Southern accent, and I think when I hang out with him that I probably sound a little more country oh, yeah. That's than great. I would around... But I don't think it's, like, code switching. I just think it's because he talks that yeah. way, and I just He'll slide back it. into, like, the For way sure. that I used to it, talk. Yeah. But, like... Right. Uh, yeah i don't know i mean this stuff gets hammered out but the reason why it got hammered out for me was because i went to like a elite school in the northeast and then went to graduate school at columbia and then just spent the last 10 years of my life around fucking media people you know like that's why it got hammered (laughs) out if i was still in north carolina hanging out and we were watching tar heels i'm sure i would sound different (laughs) you know so um anyway our point my point is only is that we should have big 10 about this stuff i don't think we should have big 10 about the n-word but i think we should have <laughs> yeah, a big yeah. tent around like uh this sort of stuff but it i don't know the gender stuff is so it, does that go ahead does that mean that in response to the popeyes video when he outed himself as being asian there was a big outcry or no there think, wasn't for like him which is fascinating piece. to me there wasn't yeah. for him but you're saying that there is a kind of gen- you you find that there is a general condemnation of like asians who try to like sound x it depends on the type of asian you are what, is, wow. what does that mean okay 
Filipinos Filipinos have a much longer leash, I think, on this stuff. Uh, And I actually think they should, you know, but Filipinos have a longer leash than East Asians do. Right. East Asians have the shortest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're identifying basically like, I guess what Ali Wong has called like the jungle Asian phenomenon, (laughs) but which is basically just like chopping up Asian America into the model minority parts or like the non-model minority parts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious that if you guys like, I know we have to move on to other topics, but we've mostly talked about the male, like black adjacent talk. So what do you guys think then think about the Kauai talk as those folks then age into adulthood? Do you think, so do you think those women will just like naturally stop? doing that or well i don't know i mean i'm interested in what you guys think about whether in the same way that like a black adjacent Uh (laughs) seeming like asian male would have a problem continuing with that in like quote-unquote polite liberal society (laughs) or whatever we're kind of you know paradigming Uh here like what would what would be the consequences for like a cutesy sanrio loving asian young woman to then become like a woman in a workplace or society does she also have to change that or does that continue being an asset for her oh that's a good question i don't know tammy do you know like the identifiably like and stereotypically problematic korean woman accent which is very like you know it's modeled after a lot of korean like actual korean speaking but it's kind of like what are you doing? You know, like, why are, it's all very, compl- you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, our yeah, Korean listeners like will know what I'm talking about. most of my West about. Coast, yeah. LA friends uh, yeah, talk like yeah. that. But I like, would say, like, all East Asians. Yeah. No, I ate yesterday. <laughs> no, yeah. you know, it gets sort of like that, but it's, uh, but. It's kind of got, like, the um, same, like, lifting, like, rising at the end of sentences as yeah. in Korean. Is that, is that a fair outside statement? Yeah, but to the untrained ear, it sounds like it's whining, yeah, yeah, yeah. like con- perpetual whining. And uh, I don't know, like I, I know a lot of older Korean women who I, you know, who are members of my family who grew up in L.A. Some of them still talk that way. And I don't know. It, it's yeah. been interesting. I, I do wonder what it's like in a workplace where somebody is not accustomed to that. But, you know, because it's sort of like a yeah. valley girl accent in a sort of way because it's so exactly. identifiable. Yeah. But um, I, I don't I think that probably it's less obvious right like it's probably less obvious than if like uh you know like if daniel kim shows up for his first day at google (laughs) he's like yo what's (laughs) popping or something (laughs) 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 let's get these algorithms done son (laughs) like you know like that that's like not that's very different than (laughs) we're talking about i don't know i i i thought that that uh, again uh, tammy are you like, given that we, how much of this do you think is just comes from Asia? Like, how much of it do you think is like, uh, yeah, is identifying with like Asian videos that they watch and trying to replicate Asian videos that they watch as, as Asian Americans? I think quite a lot. I mean, that was definitely my first yeah. in, like reaction to the the girls section of these videos. You know, it's like, oh yeah, these kind of seem like Korean food videos or yeah, Chinese right. food videos. Yeah. But the interest, but. I don't know. I mean, it's also maybe just stereotypical femininity. Like, it's something we all kind of have to process, I think, as, like, people who identify as women or as identified as women in society, you know, and and kind of have to sort that out. And I think the kawaii thing is probably appealing and it it puts white people at ease. Yeah. You know, so I don't think... I think we're you, we're right to focus on the male part of this because that is more of like a threat or weird, you know. 
Whereas I guess for Asian women, it's more like you either do the kawaii thing or you act like normal and then you're kind of frightening. The interesting thing, though, is that if these young women's families are like upper class East Asian, that's one thing. But to make some assumptions, right, if they're like Vietnamese immigrants or like South Chinese immigrants, their female role models in their family are probably like much louder and coarser and you know like and they are because they're probably more working class right and so andy Andy, what the fuck are you like these loud ass cantonese (laughs) okay so that's my that that is part of my screaming in the kitchen yeah okay Um, andy's andy's safe to say it guys it's okay andy's like basically doing i don't understand why they have to talk so loud It is interesting. Well, this goes back to the question of Asia, right? They like they they are not identifying so much with their family, but with this blob of Asia, which is probably underneath it, right? Like first Jap- first Japan, then you know Korea, then sort of like me- media uh, mm-hmm. packaged media representations of Asia that are accessible to all of them because they like think in some vague sense we all physically look alike, right? And that kind of supersedes things like. What does my family actually talk like, and how do, how are the actual fa- how are my actual family members? Um, how do they actually talk? There's a whole trend on TikTok where it's Asian check, and basically they uh, it's about like white uh, half Asian half white kids talking doing these meme videos about their white parents. Yeah, you know, and that blew my mind. Yeah, That's Ashley yeah. Burdett. Yeah, that one blew my mind. Of, I was okay. like, this could not have happened in two thousand one. Yeah, and the new meme is like, uh, and I actually find it, we'll play this for you too because I find it fascinating. And if you're gonna call me an Asian, make sure to put half in front of it. My dad, my dad is a conservative with an Asian fetish. All right, so what do we make of this one? Because this is like a whole can of worms that we can open. That one is crazy. I, I thought, <laughs> was it like. Andy was so blown. Away Andy was like texting us, being like, <laughs> what is this? It's like whole world. His whole worldview had somehow changed by exactly. this one video. He's like rewriting his book. I mean, she like, was oh com- she was in his head completely. Was she emulating like a movie scene? Like I don't know. She was like she had this like perfectly script. I mean, maybe that's whole that's the point of TikTok, right? Doing something really efficiently in like five or ten seconds. But um, she's lip syncing another TikTok. I think is what's happening. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so that's what happens a lot is that TikTokers lip sync other see. TikTokers and they put their yeah. face and they do Maybe it that was- to show to show like it's like a sh- it's like a show of solidarity almost yeah. like I'm in the same position as you. But like, what do you think about this? I like, see. I I exist because my conservative father yeah. had an Asian fetish. It's so- that's insane! <laughs> so amazing. But that's what I mean. Like, there is this like kind like of constant taboo breaking. exploration of identity, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. but it's also taboo breaking. Com- like she, I feel like you know we don't yeah. say those things about our parents, especially in public, because then you have to like, you know, like yeah, these these videos are terroristic. I think. <laughs> like these ones specifically, <laughs> they come on the heels of another trend of uh, of like of Asian videos, which were like. Uh, like, well, there's two. So one of them is the person covers their face, and then in the you see these little icons, you know, uh, decals up on the screen, and it says half X, half X, right? Like half German, half half Thai equals, and then the song plays, and at the end they like 
show their face and they're invariably like this amazingly attractive person right like so that was one of the that was one of the memes and i'm not to say that half asian people are all attractive i'm just saying these particular asian people went viral yeah, because particularly they're extremely attractive. This yeah um, they but the, the, i i am <laughs> for very right. obvious reasons the second the second one that went on was much funnier and i thought was amazing which is that they would do like uh Asian check and then they would play like a like the most stereotypical racist chinese music and they would do like a, mm-hmm. they would show like ramen packets and like, you know, like sandals outside the door and then they'd show their mom and then they would, and then they would start playing country music and they would show their dad. You know, or actually it wasn't country music. It was Neil Diamond's uh, Sweet Caroline. And then they would show <laughs> their dad and all these white things <laughs> in their houses. And then at the end they would oh show themselves. God. But like, uh, I, I don't know. I think that both of those things are sort of about this idea as more kids become multiracial, right? Like there's way more multiracial kids in the United States than there were 20 years ago, that there is this exploration of identity within those groups that is totally fascinating. And I think that the, 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 the Asian kids, you know, the Asian chefs talking with black accents, the Asian kids, you know, Filipino kids talking with black accents where that's the whole thing of their TikTok is just like, hey, I'm an Asian kid talking with black accent. I think it all fits into this thing where the kids actually in the end are not particularly radical they just kind of want the same multicultural feel goodness that we that we wanted as kids <laughs> oh <laughs> <just> no Tammy's <laughs> so mad she's like my my separatist movement is gonna fail <laughs> seriously like damn we've made no progress this <laughs> <laughs> based completely on me watching oh, tiktok God. by the way so i might be right. wrong i have no on the Our ground ethnographic study. i was gonna say are you worried the u.s China trade war is going to end TikTok. Is that your biggest? (laughs) (laughs) The death of multiculturalism with students. (laughs) TikTok embargo. (laughs) We were really heading somewhere with these teens, and then TikTok went away, and everyone became, everyone fell back into their, into their like chosen identity groups, and then we had a race war. I, uh, I don't know. I, I would be devastated because, you know, Twitter has become so weird recently, especially if you're in media Twitter, where it seems like everybody has like lost their mind, myself included. And, um, <laughs> and so TikTok is, is a nice, uh, is a nice yeah, maybe I break for me. Although I'm just kind of worried about yeah. the Chinese state spying on my phone, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'm not so worried about it because what are they going to find? They're going to find like 800 <laughs> separate text conversations about basketball and uh they're gonna think you're a 17 year old boy based on what's in your phone <laughs> yeah that too um they're gonna that that's probably more realistic all right um let's switch gears here um that went on way longer than i thought it would we, we can cut it down but um no, it was, it was i, I want to talk about uh what's happening in portland because i think it is the story that most intersects with what we are interested in, but also maybe, you know, outside of the virus, the biggest story in the country right now. And there is a article, an op-ed that was written by the writer uh, Mitchell Jackson in the New York times. And I thought that it expressed something that I've heard a lot from friends and from people. um, And it is this question of how white those protests are. Right. And it was about specifically the naked Athena. The naked Athena is a woman who, very fam- in a very famous photo, so just, you know, is, is naked sitting on the ground, spreading her legs to a line of federal officers or Portland police, I forget which one it is. And uh, that went viral along with the wall of moms who are mostly white, right? And that there's mm-hmm. this question that's risen up. It's like, what does it mean 
when this movement, which is about black lives, is so clearly represented by almost entirely white people. And so um, this author addressed that, and he said, <clears throat> I want to read from part of it here. In a monolith, it's even easier for white people to center themselves at the expense of those they claim to support. That must make it harder to know where the line is between amplifying a voice and becoming the voice, between ardent allyship and white saviorship, between the values of a cause and the culture of a city. But the difficult thing, the complicated thing, is this movement can't afford to be distorted by a quote-unquote weird. My beloved city of roses, this guy is from Portland, made a great showing at the outset of Black Lives Matter protests. You might have seen them gathered in thousands strong die in the Burnside Bridge, a preponderance of white faces turned downward in an apt symbol for George Floyd, pinned and pleading under the knee of Derek Chauvin. It made me proud to witness my city's collective conscience over the tragic death of a black man in far-off Minneapolis. But I felt a bit more ambivalent about the past 50-some days of protest since. A small few have employed anarchist tactics and or seem to have lost a vision of a unified agenda. And I've seen nary national coverage of the smaller marches or activism led by blacks and other people of color out in the numbers, what we call the part of the city that black people were dis dispersed to when whites gentrified my old neighborhood. Okay, what, what do you guys think about that? Um, that reminded me of the other New York Times uh, article that came out two days ago with a headline <clears throat> raises this question of why is this the whitest city in America, which you obviously we talked about last week. Why is the whitest city in America the most militant in terms of BLM? And I, my conclusion right now is like I don't know, and I think the art, none, the article didn't answer the question. And uh, okay, but answer, but like that that's a side point, right? Like, well, what, but what's I think the, I think it's related to because he's also he's also raising this question of why is it that what is the relationship of this white city? to BLM and I don't know like my outside speculation is like it's kind of this it's directly about people actually I mean I don't want to psychologize and say like these people don't actually care about this they care about something else but it's kind of hard not to come to that conclusion right that for them BLM is about you know outrage over George Floyd outrage over racist violence but it's also for them kind of an outpouring of other grievances they have against this against the city against the police because um right. or, why, are, or is jackson's jackson's query though is more is not like white people's relationship to black lives matter but whether the 50-day standoff in, in, in front of the federal courthouse actually has to do with blm yeah. right or well, whether it's you know just narrowly about this federal yeah, let's let's question. talk about that before in going name. into the I portland think, question Tan like what do you think is, about this yeah i mean i think I think what we said last week was right, you know, that, you know, Thank I think you. as Jay, put, we always <laughs> think we're right. But, you know, like I was talking about the gutter punks Antifa, we t like I think the three of us kind of agree that there is a certain kind of like protest infrastructure in Portland that we support and that there was interest convergence among white Antifa folks and, you know, and the mom Tifa crowd as a subcategory and Black Lives Matter. And I think in Mitchell Jackson's piece, there are some pieces of it that you know, I found quite compelling, but on the whole, I found it a frustrating yeah. piece. Why, why was it frustrating? You know, I think, because I think, first of all, he kind of misunderstands what like anarchism is and can achieve, you know, like every kind of reference to that was sort of denigrating. And, you know, I think instead of saying like, okay, not everybody has a Black Lives Matter sign, like not everybody, single person in this crowd, you know, sort of automatically gets it. We need to see what's actually like implied in their presence and in their critique of federal intervention. Yeah. I also found that, 
you know, he talks about Portland, I guess, Oregon, or I can't remember which demographics he points out, but being like, ex, you know, super majority white, and then black people, I think, are 5.8% of Portland's population. Um, I, I was curious, like, if, like, what there's to be said about, like, Asians and Latinos and Native folks who've also been turning out at these protests. Yeah. Like, again, there is, like, a super binary, yeah. you know, thing going on in this article. And I, and then I guess the last thing is this whole discourse around, like, keep Portland weird, which has been, a, you know, a kind of funny slogan saying, you know, in Portland and in places like Seattle, other places where there's been, like, hippie and alternative cultures that have been kind of, like, wiped out or threatened by, like, tech and gentrification yeah. and, like, hedge fund investment. Um, he, like, kind of dismisses that all out of hand as, like, being, like, mm -hmm. very white. And that may sound white to him, but to me that's actually, like, an economic critique that is deeper. And again, there are like spaces to be mined here of like what we have in common. Yeah. So I would rather like explore that and not just dismiss this out of hand. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, this is why I was thinking like, you know, what is actually going on with people? What is the actual recent history of Portland the last 20, 30 years from what it, from what I could gather, this keep Portland weird thing is a very recent phenomenon, right? It's like the last 20, 30 years. Up until like the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. it was a relatively conservative state. And so it feels like the city has undergone these rapid transformations. Um, and maybe this outburst is kind of the city kind of reckoning with it. You know, there's this sort of upper layer of mm -hmm. well-to-do people who've benefited from like, you know, new construction, new development. And there's other people who have been here all along and feel very frustrated with it. And then there's probably like people in the middle who, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word, or want to be allies. They're, they're probably newcomers, but they also feel solidarity for people. I don't know. I don't think they're newcomers. I don't think so. I, mean, I think they're mostly old Portland residents who have lived there for a long time. Um, but I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean well, to cut you off. Well, the majority of these, I assume the majority of the protesters are pretty young, right? You don't think there would be yeah. like sort of like incoming yuppies who work at Oh, sure. I mean, there definitely are like at Nike or something like that or whatever at one of the yeah. various advertising agencies around there. But yeah. um, So I go, I probably go to Portland like three or four times a year. My cousin I saw yesterday, she lives there and she's been going to the protests and she was talking about how you know, you do run into some people who have weird signs that are like irrelevant or, you know, there's chaos in protests, but that's just like a normal feature of protests, you know? And I think like she, it was her view too that there probably are white people there who like weren't coming out to the original post Floyd death protests who are coming out to these and might have specific thoughts about Trump and, you know, federal intervention. But, you know, I think, in general, she and other BLM folks were appreciative yeah. of that. There's, you know, and actually could see that there could be education and convergence with those people. So I don't know. I, I curious what you guys think. I my feeling is this is a BLM protest. It looks a little different, and it's really white. And I think yeah. that's fine. Black. I mean, Black Lives Matter. Black is kind of uh, like a bridge for people to kind of. I mean, this kind of gets into like our discussion of like um, identity politics and Combahee. You know, other times that black is not just like for black for black sake, it's black, both for black people, but also as a bridge to understand the structures that make black oppression possible, which would get into economic questions, political questions. Um, yeah. There was that article in The Nation that uh, 
we you know we all talked about by Kent, with Kent Ford, who I guess found the Black Panther Party in Portland, great. and he's very explicitly saying, and he's been in protest for decades, explicitly saying he welcomes everyone to these protests. He welcomes the Antifa. He welcomes the anarchists. Uh, that Antifa like saved Cornell West's life in Virginia, and we shouldn't try to draw these divisions. And that sounds to me, maybe the division isn't so much black white, but like who who is used to protesting versus you know, people. Yeah. Mitchell, Mitchell Jackson is a writer, right? Like he's not, I mean, not, and that isn't to denigrate the writers or to say that Mitchell Jackson hasn't been involved in protest (laughs) community, the black community in Portland for a while. I think he has, but, um, I don't know. I think that we should be, I I found this compelling just because I've heard it from my friends, a similar version of this, right. Um, that there is this wariness and this exhaustion with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't think that it should be dismissed and say, like, that things should, you know, all, like, you know, that you can't feel this way because these people are there. At the same time, I think that part yeah. of the problem is, I do think it is a familiarity with these spaces that when you get to older and more established protest and organizers or organizers in general, community organizers, that they would be more on the side of, of the Portland Black Panther Party, yeah. right? Where where they're so. like, if you show up, that's good with us. Yeah. You know, just show up, and we'll figure it out. And I, the question I think that we've been circling around for the last three weeks is just like, is there a form of this type of identity politics that is anathema to building the movement further? Yeah, and it's something mm-hmm. Tammy, you've written about, you've thought about in the context of Kambahi. I've written and I've thought about. And I don't know what the answer is, but I do think that the examination of the answer is uncomfortable. And I think that makes it harder to uh, actually come to any sort of conclusion. Like, I don't know, especially when it's, you know, in a lot of ways paired, at least in the media, with this deference where if Mitchell Jackson is a black writer and he says this, then we can't question it, right? Um, I'll just say that I will... You know, I think it's good to question these things. I think Mitchell Jackson would want these things contested. And that that type of deference is generally like amongst white liberals who, you know, to police themselves. I don't feel that because yeah. I'm not a white liberal. Um, and so <laughs> I'll just say I, I think that, that, that while I do agree that the sites of these are strange and that they can be distorted in a way and that I do actually find Portland's weird culture to be very white, you know, and I find it actually more mm-hmm. annoying than you do, Tammy. Like, I think it's annoying that people show up dressed as bananas to these protests, <laughs> right? And like make it into some big Portland weird joke. Like, it's it's obnoxious. But yeah. um, those people are still doing something that's very brave, you know, by going out there when there are these federal troops out where there are these scenes of incredible violence and they just keep showing up. Yeah. And so, yeah, questioning their motives. You know, by saying, well, it's not about X, it's about Y. First of all, you don't know those people, you know, like you don't know what, right. why they're doing it. And B, and, and, you know, secondly, I just don't understand the point of such intense, fine-tuned question of people's motives when they're showing up to do this. Like the idea that they would go out and put their bodies on the line for this possibly is should be enough you know like it's it's that's a lot to do that many people don't do that and uh you can question the motives of the people who don't do that yeah. you know <laughs> but for the people who do yeah. do that I, I think that you should just be yeah. you should have a wider tent for yeah. them yeah it might be useful because we keep talking referring to the combahee river collective and identity politics should we actually just kind of clarify that distinction 
that seems to be at the heart of... Why do we keep talking well, about Well, I mean, it? <laughs> it seems to me that the, yeah. a lot of the writing about this kind of circles around a, a basic distinction between, t- to be very simplistic, good identity politics versus not not so good identity yeah. politics. Right. Um, mm-hmm. my, Neoliberal identity yeah. politics. And my, my... Right. The co-optation yeah. of identity politics. I mean, do you want to that's clarify that? That's my leftist podcast. Because it does seem like, to, <laughs> as a heuristic, like Ken Ford is on one side. And this writer for the New York Times, Mitchell Jackson, is that last Mitchell name? Jackson, is on the yeah. other side, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and yeah. that's sort of the the framework we're applying. Uh, yeah, and it's different than like saying like that. Uh, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones is on one side, and Adolf Reed is on one side. These are not as <laughs> no, these are right. not as like intensely defined as those yeah. sides. Like both of them are yeah. kind of like look, we we support this. Right. You right. Know? We we think that right. it's good that white people come right. out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that is a distinction, though. Andy, I think that's right. The distinction would be and, like, yeah. I think the the criticism would be the the one that the the CRC kind of bemoans has evolved. That's a Combahee River right. Collective, not the Chinese Romulanist Communist Party. Chinese Red Communist. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay good. Um, <laughs> is yeah, it's about kind of having an in group. And saying, you know, defer to the in-group and, and placing a certain group above everyone else. Whereas I think what the CRC is trying to argue is that they were, you know, black women who are saying they are using their particular experience as black women, trying to be as specific as possible, but at the same time, not placing the struggles of black women over anyone else's, but saying that this is their specific entry point into broader discussions about this is yeah, important, right? Politics. Capitalism, yep. which yep. what they say is kind of yep. taken off the table with a lot of the newer identity politics. And American imperialism, right. yeah. which was like a key distinction between that totally. and racism this. and all yeah. patriarchy and all these and, things. Tammy, you've written a lot about this and talked to Kianga and talked to uh, you know, some of the people within the Combahee River Collective. Like what what do they think? You know, what what do they think about about this? divide like do they do they necessarily see it as a divide do they they think there's an identity politics divide yeah so the podcast we we put out an interview the other day with margo okazawa ray who is japanese and black and participated in the kambahi dialogues of the 70s which if folks don't know they were in boston and they were a group of mostly queer black women um, who were involved in various struggles in the area but came together to organize and and then three of them eventually authored a short manifesto, which is where the term identity politics first appeared, but has, a, as we've discussed, a very different definition than the way we've been using it or the way I would say the white, like white liberals and the right have cynically deployed it. Um, yeah, Margot, I thought was super illuminating. She made a few points that I think are germane to our conversation, which are there is less attention now to questions of empire and internationalism, yeah. which is a problem. You know, there's more categorizing and purity testing now in, in certain movements. There's more like kind of unproductive critique, which she identified as a problem. Um, I think they, the women of this movement are very big tent. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we, the three of us kind of trying to use them as our model is, yeah. is, you know, the reason why that's compelling to us is because, they saw a world in which like you could focus on blackness, but you could still have a liberation that's for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And they saw race not 
just in terms of black white either of course like in articulating the concerns of black women that was necessarily in opposition to white supremacy at certain moments but they could see that that was also connected to like the struggles of other third world peoples which in that moment particular political moment meant like asians and native people around the world and you know yeah, yeah and um, they're you know latin groups so and all of them who've authored that statement i think or at least i saw barbara smith had have come out and mm-hmm. said that there's too much oppression olympics right now right yes and that that i think That's is right. the that i think is the key mm-hmm. part of all of this is that when you do this analysis and you say that and i think the analysis is key and you say there are specific ways in which black women are oppressed both as women both as black people and then as black women right that they're that mm-hmm. that and that to analyze and to undo them and to stand in solidarity with other people who are you know at any of those types of you know who feel any of the same things like that is that is you know the honest work of somebody who is trying to make society uh much better now i don't think that the people who like engage in quote-unquote oppression olympics also don't want to make society better i think that they do but i think that at the point where the point is really to just say that, well, we suffered more and so you can't speak is actually damaging the coalition building in a way, yeah. right? And what it leads to is constant deference. And what the constant deference leads to is, and this is what we talk about all the time, which is why I think it's important to just keep bringing it up is because it is so important. I think what constant, def- constant deference does is it leads to completely weak allyship and that it doesn't lead yeah. to an actual coalition. It leads to people just posting shit on Instagram, right? Or or going to or doing writing a letter to their parents or something like that. And that for <laughs> for Asians, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but this is my general thought. But Tammy, I think that that you at least agree with this, which is that <laughs> we can analyze <laughs> Andy, I'm not sure. You even have some. You even have some out there takes recently, like the the uh, the the like you know like Chinese people talk so loud. Type of takes like um, <laughs> canceled. If we could if we could examine uh, you know the question of Asian America and how where we where what things we benefit from, what things we don't benefit from, what things we are lying to ourselves about, then we can actually stand in better, you know, in better solidarity and coalition with other oppressed groups. And that if the problem that we have is that we essentially try and lie about so much stuff so that we can appear as white liberals, right? So that we can do the white liberal version of, <laughs> of, of uh, allyship. And I find Kambahit completely important and vital to this moment just because of the constant declarations of uh of solidarity that that are throughout that statement and which the founders have continually said and i don't know if i see that on you know just to be honest like i'm not sure if i see that in the other forms of identity politics that have grown up which are much more about oppression olympic stuff the the way i would put it this is this way if you make it all about let's say deference to a particular identity group let's say black woman because i think CRC has been kind of twisted into saying something like black women are the most important, which was not their message, right? Um, If you twist it into something like all, you know, we should all pay deference to black women in particular, then how reliable are those quote unquote allies when their own particular interests come into direct conflict with the interests of that particular group? And I kind of think that's what your affirmative action uh, reporting, Jay, has kind of shown so clearly. It's what are Asian Americans supposed to do when they are told to kind of line up behind this uh, political movement for a different group that is so directly in contradiction with their own personal, even just, you know, even if they're just 
admittedly self selfish about this, their own self-interest, right? Like, how do you resolve that? There is no real playbook for that other than, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a lot of deflection your and, own interest yeah. beneath someone else's. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to convince someone to do that. I mean, one thing that came to mind is, do you guys remember Mark Lilla? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so for folks who don't know, Mark Lilla is at Columbia, and he's written a lot of critiques of identity politics, including in major newspapers. And um, the way that he and other white liberals of his ilk, I think, frame identity politics is like, oh, all these, you know, kind of like angry, resentful, like non-white people, they're just so obsessed with their kind of minority concerns that they don't get what's good for like the larger populace, I guess, is, you know, the way that I interpret this critique. And you know, I think... One thing that has maybe happened is that there's also there's so much kind of gatekeeping by the white establishment around certain kinds of issues that I think there is in certain quarters of, you know, people of color, however we want to define that as sort of maybe retrenchment or um, a kind of looking inward, a a sort of feeling a very like defensive posture about like taking care of certain of our own, you know, kind of community concerns. Um, because we haven't felt that we have access to places where we can determine things that are kind of larger, more programmatic things. So for instance, like I think until the development of kind of Occupy Bernie type stuff, it was very hard for like black people, Asian people, Latino people who might have concerns about like social programs and the welfare state to have a language to articulate that and to feel that we could actually have Mm -hmm. power around those things, even though we know that those are important. And so the way of kind of voicing like what we think is wrong with society was often through like a racial lens, because that was kind of what we had permission to say and to do. So I think that, you know, I think that is something that we are curing through like people of color movements in socialism that are reclaiming earlier histories of black and brown socialism. That is like very positive to me. But, you know, I think like there there was maybe at, at a moment like this time where there was a lot of a kind of inward turn and the language used to express universal concerns seemed minoritarian yeah. or too like minority yeah. driven. But I think, you know, I think then blaming those people for doing that is so for messed sure. up. Yeah. I think it's a reaction in large part to the changing demographics of the country, right? Where, yeah. and I think it's ex- that white people don't quite know how to deal with the fact that there are a lot more different types of people now. And um, yeah. I think that it, oh, that, it, having one group only to focus on which is also the group that has the most political power but also is the group that you know is the most oppressed and is identified with the oppressed and has told them you know and is ex- that, that type of oppression is broadcast out through media and everything like that that it's a lot easier then right to just say that to glom onto a type of identity politics that places that says that these concerns are exclusive and that everybody else should just act as an ally and not organize themselves, right? Because what does mm-hmm. that mean is that it means that all you have to do is fix one of the problems. The other problems don't matter, right? Like, and that, um, that other forms of racism don't matter as much. And look, for, like, like we've always said on the show, is look, for us, like as you know, middle class, upper middle class East Asians, I think that there is some validity to that, right? But... Um, lumping us in with everybody else who is really struggling, who is Asian American, 
and saying that those people's concerns don't matter either is like, you know, like that, that it's really destructive and it's crazy to me that that, that has mm-hmm. become the norm. But I, if you think about it from the perspective, like a white liberal who is the pe- per, type of person who consumes these things, right? It makes perfect sense to just say there's only one problem. Yeah. You know, there's, and especially when you have a group of people who are black or who are Asian, who are white, who study these things, you know, professionally, who are also telling you that, right? And like, that's where the academy, I think, comes in. And that's where a lot of the media comes in, which is that the type of commentator that they, that they prefer are the types of person who will whittle this down to a one, yeah. an easy one person yeah. type of thing. And so like, I don't think it is an explosion of truth that's been happening in media and the academy over the past 10 years, I think it is the selection process, yeah. right? Where a one type of perspective that is the most amenable to white liberals is once again reproduced. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I think that's why there's so much of it, Tammy, but I don't know, like, is it, is it that way on the streets or is it that way on the ground? Is it that way at the protests? Because I will say that in some ways that when I go to protests and, you know, when I covered protests and went to a lot of protests, I would say that most of the most of the times my answer was no, that people are much more big tent and like, let's try and find coalitions. And yet there are many moments where the answer was yes, you know. And so I don't think it's I, I don't think we can really just like wave this off and just say, well, it's just in the media and the academy. I think it it right. is also in these spaces as well. I don't know what your guys' experience has been. I, I There is a palpable anxiety in some of the protests around like, you know, if there is a predominance of white people mm. or, you know, there's, there is not necessarily like universalist rhetoric being employed at the protests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's challenging. It's, you know, at the same, you want to be able to say that saying Black Lives Matter should be a universal goal that everybody can attach themselves to, um, which I think is true, but... You also want to use a language that is inviting and acknowledges the fact that a lot of people are killed by state violence and that state violence operates in many different ways against many different kinds of people. Um, So, you know, do we have an infrastructure that's steady enough that we can pivot from Black Lives Matter to abolish ICE to, you know, you know, against the war in Afghanistan? Like, I don't think we have that right now. But I think the hope of of the organizers is that we can get there. One thing I I was thinking was like maybe what, so the Comberhi, the CRC is reacting to a problem, which is in the 70s, leftist discourse was not specific, right? It was too broad. It was like, there's just this thing of this thing called capitalist oppression. And they kind of framed it in a very much like, how does this affect Black people, but, but black they were men, also, right? but not black women. They're also, yeah, yeah. They're also like responding to the white feminist. Yeah, exactly. Well. Like feminism yeah. is white. Uh, the black movement is male and patriarchal, etc. So we exactly. have to be more specific. Yeah. I almost wonder, and I don't have an answer to this question, but just as a rhetorical question, is it too much of an impossible lift to both be as specific as possible, while also calling mm-hmm. for solidarity politics and to kind of keep your eye on the big picture of the big isms of you know the. Uh, you know, racism, capitalism, patriarchy. Um, it might be like, it's just kind of, it's too much of a, it's it's not impossible, but perhaps it's like just like a, a, a goal to kind of keep out there, but it's, you know, probably impossible to realize in practice. But, you know, maybe for that reason, it's therefore useful as a way to kind of keep people, um, you know, constantly striving for something better or something more yeah. more perfect. Yeah. Right? I've thought that too. Right. 
I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I don't either. I mean, it's 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 both impossible and the only way to do any kind of movement yeah. work because yeah. you need to have something specific right. to talk about to actually have yeah. a, as your goal. Everyone you know? has to so, find their particular way into these things. I mean, yeah, like right. the peace movement in the late 60s, right, was led by white men, and that's why all these other things started because the white men were not including anybody else, yeah. right? And so um, I don't, I think it's a constant question and it's hard to answer. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about the, um, as a reference point, I think a lot about the divestment campus protests in the 80s and 90s here in the United States and how, you know, like places like Wesleyan College or, smith college or whatever mostly white like elite colleges did seem to have a great deal amount of solidarity around that but you know first of all that's a very clear goal you say my university needs to stop spending money investing money in these places right and secondly it's it's abstract in a way um that that black lives matter is not because it's about south africa right you know like it's 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 totally fine for a white person to be concerned about apartheid yeah. without feeling too compl- to complicit about it and not having to bring their identity into it too much right because you know like black americans caring about apartheid they do have a closer purchase to it they are closer to it but th- it's abstract for them as well too because it is about yeah. mm-hmm. south african like and so um i don't know i think that those types of movements can have broad solidarity and that you can use different groups and say, you know, you could have like, for example, Tammy, you could have like a Korean group saying that, yes, American, like Western colonialism is bad. And I also know this because I'm Korean, right? Or they can say, uh, um, and I think, or state violence is bad. And I know this because I'm, you know, like because of the, what my parents went through. But yeah, I think that it's harder when it's, so when it's in American, I don't know the, the, the Andy has asked the question that I don't know yeah. the answer to that, you know, honestly keeps me, doesn't keep me up at <laughs> night. Like I don't want to make it seem overly dramatic, <laughs> but I, I, I puzzle over all the time, which is, I don't know totally. if the actual infrastructure of this movement is, uh, that whether or not broad solidarity can be built within it yeah. because of the way that it's posed. And, um, yeah. And so far, I think that the answer is yes, because there's so many people going out to these marches and mm-hmm. you have places like um, you have things like, uh, <laughs> you know, like a whole bunch of white moms in Portland going out for this. And so I think the obvious answer is yes. But um, I think that that at the point, I don't know if it has a potential to expand to broader critiques um, and People can point to uh, things like the platforms that a lot of these organizations have put out and say that there is already a movement to a broader critique. But I think that's a little bit too sunny thinking for now. You know, like I think right now we're still in a moment where we're trying to determine whether or not this is about George Floyd and police violence or not. And that's where we are. And we should just be honest about that. I've been kind of surprised at the beginning. There were a few pieces I've read that connected Floyd to the coronavirus his particular experience to being, you know, laid off as a result yeah. of the COVID pandemic, how he had himself had COVID, et cetera. There haven't been too many people trying to explore that sort of this combo he style say combo he style argument saying Floyd's particular struggle was a reflection of these general structures that we all struggle from or are a part of, right? That hasn't really as far as I can see, hasn't really flourished. It's mostly been about there was a spectacular incidence of violence that just aroused a lot of anger 
um, in people. But maybe, I don't know, maybe have you guys seen mm-hmm. those types of analyses? Um, not really. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like, I don't, I, I haven't really like, um, and I don't know why. Yeah. Annie, go ahead. Well, just cause I do think talking about things like inequality and rising land prices, rent prices in Portland and Seattle mm-hmm. would be good, but we've also seen a lot of pushback that that is not a specifically black issue. Therefore, you know, that's mm-hmm. not, um, what this movement is about. And personally, I would like it, you know, I think that's good because it would obviously tap into yeah. things that people have much more of a direct connection to. Um, right. Yeah. I, that, yeah, like the, Tammy, I don't know your experiences, but my experience is that, again, it's generational and that the older organizers are much more willing to have broader critiques. And I think part of it is just because a lot of the older uh, organizers are, you know, anti-capitalist they're anti-imperialist mm-hmm. uh, they are willing to make connections between what's happening in the streets of minneapolis and palestine for example right like they're well versed in that type of revolutionary language and that um and i think that some of the younger people who have come up and taken a prominent place in some of these movements are less yeah. interested in capitalism and they are more about uh what I, you know, in the most derisive way will be called like a, uh, you know, sort of identity politic, neoliberal identity politics type of thing. And that I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is without shaming, you know, like protest shaming, because I, we're all against that. But I do think that that is the divide. And I think it's one that needs to yeah. be resolved because I, I think that like, I, I mean, I, I think I told this story, but I told, like I said, all right, at least wrote about it. So I went to a, a rally here in Oakland and a young person stood up and was like, we don't want anarchists here, you yeah. know? Like, this is not about you. It's not about you white people. And then the older organizer who had organized the whole thing, of course, like, cut him off, you know? And she was like, she's like, no, yeah. you know? Like, we don't say yeah. that. Some of my best friends are anarchists, yeah. you know? And the and that that's where I've heard the, where she said the line, like, the best, pro, the good protester is the protester who yeah. shows up, you know? And there there's a real, there was a real age difference. <laughs> And there's a real experience difference there that I found to yeah. be interesting. And so interesting. I think it is, you know, that's why they do these teach-ins. You know, that's why they do these, like, courses. Yeah. That's why they teach kids at the, you know, they take these kids who keep showing up and, and, and give them books to read and stuff like that is so that they right. can move away from that. But when everything is so chaotic and everything is online, you know, and when that's media hard. people yeah. can, like, go up to any single person on the street and if that person is black, then that person is called a quote-unquote organizer. You know, the message really becomes chaotic. I mean, Jay, you said they're not interested in capitalism. I actually think they're interested in capitalism, but they're framing it in a very national, American-centric way. And, you know, we don't have to get into, like, Tom Cotton and 1619 and all that, but I think that is all symptomatic of a piece of of the way that a lot of... Um, there's just been, like, a disturbing amount of nationalism i think in the last and not just like in the patriotic being your chest kind of nationalism just like your frame of reference is the nation state um yeah I, I'm, I'm not talking about all young kids either i'm just talking about the right. specific types of but kids is, who would like stand stand up and be like you know like uh we don't want anarchists here we don't want this is just about yeah, x but it does it does seem to be like more than 10 years ago and this is something the academy i've noticed in the academy more than 10 years ago people are kind of going back into their nation state containers um whereas you know the 2000s were all about thomas friedman and globalization talk so 
something to, I don't know. Yeah. No. Something we've wrestled with a lot on this podcast. I think, I think the younger protesters understand capitalism in the context of police because the defund and police thing is real. And that's, Domestically. You know, it is isn't. Right. it. But this is the tanky issue, yes, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I think it's narrow, it's narrow, subst- like, substantively in the sense that it's looking only really at the police, you know? And it is domestically focused. Yeah, they're not also having, like, a campaign for, like, Pentagon yeah. reduction, you know, which I think is necessary. But anyway, I mean, I think, but, you know, to Jay's point about this generational divide, like, I think that is probably real. And it, you know, I, I would say even young people with whose organizing has maybe gone back to 2014 and 15 probably even have much of a deeper thing. So it's also about, like, the kinds of connections you've made through the process of organizing that you then learn lessons from and carry into your next campaign. But for people who are just coming onto the street now, yeah, I think it's, like, very tricky. Like, I was... I was thinking about how in Atlanta, around the same time that CHOP got going in Seattle, there was, like, an all-black space that was founded by the pro- by some protesters to have as a kind of, like, their own sort of, like, Within occupied CHOP. zone. And, like, what... Yeah. You oh, know, okay. in Atlanta... Yeah, also and, in but Chop around the too. same time yeah, as Chop. Yeah, yeah. Oh, within Chop. Okay, yeah, sorry. The yeah, part so. of the park was like, yeah, certain types of the part of the day were designated as black only. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah, so I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about that too, like spatial segregation and spatial like occupation and kind of like what the function of that is, and, you know, within a broad-based movement. And I... I don't know. I mean, I, I do I do understand that questions of, like, belonging and safety are real and that people want, you know, then, you know, have different, like, answers to that. But, you know, my, my hope, like, for Mitchell Jackson, his critique at the, I think, at the top of his editorial was there, you know, there's a joke that there are more Black Lives Matter signs than Black people in Portland. Should, well, there yeah. should be. Right. <laughs> you know, there's, sh- I mean, there should be a bajillion yeah. Black Lives Matter signs. Right. Uh, so, if you, if you yeah, want to win. Like, oh, sorry. That's fine. What right. is that? So do, you you like a, do you have like a landline? Do you have like a landline or something? <laughs> I have, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna oh keep this in. So sorry. Do not do are not edit this out. Are you in a are you in a vet's office? Uh, yeah, a veterinary office. Tammy is holding my up like a. My parents have a landline. Uh, <laughs> oh What's the deal with why do you have a why do you have a map of the world behind you, Tammy? Like, I'm in my parents' house. She's got like pins on all the countries. She's gonna. <laughs> Yeah, my parents like to camp, so they put pins everywhere uh, that they've okay, gone. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, is there is there anything? <laughs> These are all important questions. About? We'll keep discussing. That's that's yeah, and I think so. yeah, that's that's my sense. Yeah, I, 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 I can't figure out what the. Um, I mean, this. I I I think that there'll probably be some shift at some point but who knows you know like maybe it also won't okay um well thank you for listening to our show um we do this every week and you can find us on itunes you can find us on substack or you can find us on twitter at ttsg pod um we are our dms are open so you can send us any type of message that you would like there if you are not about sliding into the dms of the podcast then you can send us an email at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com is that right and always okay, okay. <laughs> i can't I, I i came up with the email and i cannot remember it and it just shows what a failure i am as an administrator because i picked an email that even i can't remember um 
uh, we, uh, you know, please, and the best way that you can support us, as always, is to sign up for our newsletter, and you can get that at goodbye.substack.com. Uh, until next week, thanks for listening.